Welcome to Brand Story Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Joining us today on Brand Story Inc. is Rich Greenfield, a partner at Lightshed Partners, where he's a technology, media, and telecom analyst for the New York City-based firm. Lightshed provides institutional investors, subscribers, and industry execs differentiated insights on its research portal, lightshedmt.com, and offers unique corporate access and events to its clients. Uh, Rich, really excited to have you here on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with 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 Lightshed Partners. Uh, I'm curious uh, as we enter August here, what the hot topics that that you're seeing in the media landscape right now. You know, look, I think obviously everyone is focused on how the pandemic is changing the landscape, and you know, in many ways, accelerating trends. I mean, it's obviously upending certain businesses but how it's accelerating underlying trends. Obviously cord cutting was a big theme for the last several years, but there's been a a dramatic acceleration in cord cutting because we're all living on streaming services during the pandemic. There isn't much to watch on linear television. There's Mm -hmm. no sports or sports are slowly starting to come back, but there's been no sports for months. There's not a whole lot of new television content and a lot of reruns and older programming and, kind of heavy reality TV doses uh, across broadcasting cable networks. And so it's forcing more and more people who have already been shifting to streaming, but this has just given them more reasons to shift to streaming. I think gaming has been a huge theme of the pandemic. You know, I think everywhere you look, uh, I don't even care what age you are, whether you're 45, 35, 25, 15, 10, I mean, gaming has just taken over and people are filling in time that would have been spent watching entertainment Mm -hmm. on TV or even on streaming. And I think it has certainly eaten into that entertainment time spent uh, with people learning to play a whole wide array of games. And so I think that's a big takeaway. And then the other big one that we've been thinking a lot about is sort of the explosion of audio. And it, again, this was also happening pre pandemic, but I think if you look at what's happened over the last several months in podcasting, Spotify going very heavy, Sirius making some big acquisitions, um, New York Times last week making an acquisition of Serial, which sort of kicked this all off. Sort of everywhere you look, you're, you know, you can't sort of go anywhere in media without hearing about the explosion of podcasting. And, you know, just like people used to talk about what show are you watching right. on a video streaming service, I feel like everyone now is like, what, what podcast do you like? What would you be listening to? It's like the new, the, the new bucket list that you're building for your own, you know, kind of personal self is, is you know, not just what, you know, what um, video content, but now what audio content you should be binging. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned podcasts and, and you know, I, I am definitely guilty as charged on what we call me search, you know, things that I'm doing and therefore I assume other people are doing more walks, more, you know, more time with your device. Um, so th- there seems to be that component. I-, I find myself doing that as well, but it-, it speaks to whether it's streaming connected TV, which I want to dive into specifically with you or even podcast. It's, there's just this unwieldy amount of content on so many different platforms and, and navigating it is, is just crazy, right? I mean, in terms of, 
Um, the well, dis- yes and no. I mean, look, we've all lived in a multi-hundred channel TV universe for years and years, and you know, a lot of content got lost in that world. I think it's really, um, I think it's actually in some ways easier in the streaming world because when you watched, you know, let's just say you watched, um, uh, you know, think about a show back in the day. You used to watch Friends on NBC. Yep. When you turned on your cable or satellite box, it didn't go, hey, would you like to watch the latest episode? Or remember it's on on Wednesday night? Or because you watch Friends, you probably would like this, this, Mm -hmm. and this? Mm -hmm. It never did that, right? Like, it wasn't like when you were watching The Sopranos on HBO, it said, hey, Rich, you know, people who like The Sopranos really like The Wire, and you never saw The Wire, so you'd like it, and you should start it and click here to watch it. Whereas in the streaming world, obviously, these platforms have a direct one-to-one relationship with you. They know who you are. Generally, you know, you're logged in as an individual user versus a household account. Yeah. So whether it's Netflix or Disney, they know that it's me versus my daughter. And they can customize not just what I see when I open it up, but when I start clicking on content, every everything I do, whether I browse for longer and hover over something, whether I watch a preview, they're learning every part of the way and they're building data and understanding of who Rich Greenfield is, who my kids are, who my wife is. And they're using that to make it, to suggest content and to create a better experience. I mean, think about Netflix. When you open up Netflix and I open up Netflix, even if we both see the exact same show, your cover art may be different than mine. The video that auto plays to give you a taste of it my video may be different than yours. Everything, yeah. you know, they are looking at the cohorts all over the world trying to understand what is going to be the best piece of content to show you and how best to present it to you so that you spend time with that content and go down that rabbit hole and get lost. No, that's a great point, right? The algorithmic, you know, the, the value, the algorithm and the, and the guided journey, um, is really compelling, and to your point, I feel like we're in that moment. And one of the reasons I was so excited to have Rich Greenfield, uh, partner at Lightshed Partners, on join us is because of your purview of the landscape, both uh, big picture and over time. Uh, that me search thing. Right now, uh, in my day job, running a content agency, I've been somewhat inundated recently with third parties and all these different companies saying, hey, you know, let us help you get on connected TV and Roku and FUBU and Zumi and let us help you navigate that that world. So whether it's called connected TV, direct to consumer content, OTT, host of other terms and acronyms, all under this cord cutting alternative way folks are consuming content, I would love for you to just try to maybe establish in the big picture a broad brush of where we are in this connected TV world from a business perspective and a marketplace perspective. Uh, You know, despite the fact that Netflix has been doing this for, you know, over a decade, Mm -hmm. I would still go and sort of use the, the Jeff Bezos term of it feels like day one, right? I mean, we've still got, 78, 79 million homes that are subscribing to multi-channel television through cable or satellite. Um, You know, some of them are using VMVPDs like YouTube TV or Hulu Live, but Mm -hmm. there's still an an incredible number. I mean, you've got, what, 120-plus million U.S. households 
my TV households, um, you know, there's with just less than 80 million of them still having some form of big bundle of channels. It still feels pretty early. And so, and, and the reason I say it's sort of early is like, think about what's just happened in the past year. Apple TV plus, <laughs> what is it? Eight months old now. Right. It launched last November. Uh, Peacock launched last week nationally. Yeah. Yeah, HBO plus. Max back in May. Quibi, you know, yeah. not so much a TV service as it is a mobile service, but still launched this year. I mean, the vast majority of these services are launched within the past 12 months. I mean, heck, CBS All Access is going to transform into some new brand. I don't know if it'll be Viacom, CBS, but they're relaunching it in early 2021. And yeah. I guess that's where I, I come back to is like, it still feels really early. And so, yes, Hulu's been around for a decade, and Netflix has been around for a decade, and Prime Video for the last, whatever, eight-plus years. But it still feels pretty early when you look at the, the shift that we're seeing you know, from traditional television to streaming television. And you know, I think when you look at where we are now, it looks like most of the ambitious content outside of sports and news is now all being put onto these streaming platforms. And so... I think this is like the year, call it 20 and 21. It sort of feels like this is the year where you really put the pedal to the metal, right? Like everyone is realizing that like they can't avoid this. Yeah. There is no, there, there is not going to be traditional TV. You know, there may be a bundle for diehard sports fans, but for entertainment content, the bundle's over. It's in the rear yeah. view mirror. I mean, I, we, we sort of call it at light shed. We call it a post-bundle world. Like That's sort of like where we are now. And I think everyone sort of accepts that now. It's all about these streaming services. You know, how are they going to differentiate themselves? How do they improve? How do they improve their distribution? Because we sort of moved. The gatekeepers used to be companies like Comcast and Charter in terms of getting distribution to the home. Now broadband is, you know, broadband's become the method of distribution, and it's pretty much ubiquitous. I mean, the, you know, especially if you look at the pandemic, right? Like we've all realized just how important broadband is, but you no longer have those set top box gatekeepers because yeah. anyone can subscribe to a Netflix or to an HBO Max. The new gatekeepers uh, of the streaming world actually become the TVOS platforms, the Roku's, the Prime Videos, or you know, the, the sorry, the Fire TVs, the Apple TVs, you know, Android TV. Those are the new gatekeepers, and I think it's that shift that we're spending a lot of time at Lightshed thinking about in terms of how does this ecosystem shift and evolve because we never anticipated, you know, if I think back a year ago, I never would have anticipated that HBO Max would launch and everyone with a Roku or a Fire TV device wouldn't be able to watch. Yeah. <laughs> we thought of Roku as sort of the Switzerland, right? Like Exactly. Is when I thought of and I mean, I love my Roku. It's a great device. I remember when I bought it originally, it was because it had everything. Yep. I could get Amazon Prime Video. I could get Netflix. Like, it was the only box that played Switzerland. There was no favorites. And now I need to go get an Apple TV and use that because I can't get everything on Roku. And, and that's a pretty seismic change in the media space that's all played out over the course of the last, you know, really over the last, you know, four or five months. Yeah, you said with HBO Max, for me, I had that moment, right, last week with Peacock when it was 
Roku and Peacock and a standoff. I was like, oh my gosh, this is insane. This is completely flipped from the way it used to be, right? In terms of the the guardian your, of your living room, which good segue because I really enjoyed the post you recently did titled The War for Your Living Room. Here comes Google, watch out Roku, Amazon, and Apple. Take our listeners through the, your thesis of that feature that you penned. You know, the idea is that we've sort of shifted the gatekeepers, as we were just talking about. So the gatekeepers are now the TVOS platforms or devices that you get. And, you know, we're going to basically, there's been this question. I mean, I, I can still hear him saying it in my ears. I think about Sumner Redstone when he would, you know, made the famous statement, content is king. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, if, if you were a distributor, you couldn't not offer content to the consumer. I mean, think about it. If you were in the early days of cable TV in the late 90s, like not having MTV, like you were dead. You yeah. had to have MTV. I mean, spring break and the grind. And you think about all those like, you know, iconic MTV programs that, you know, youth culture was defined by, you know, it's not TV, it's MTV. And it's like, mm-hmm. um, it's just amazing. You know, when you think about what it meant and, the, you know, you think about where we are now and the challenge is, is that those old battles um, are no longer relevant. It's now all about the streaming platforms. And the question is, can you have a, can you have a, a TVOS platform? Can you be Roku? Can you be fire TV? And can you only offer certain streaming services? Like we know that if you didn't have Netflix, you're DOA, right? Like there's yeah. no way you could have a, you, you can't offer an IP set top box or a, a connected TV. The thought of buying a connected TV and it doesn't offer Netflix feels DOA. Yeah, agreed. Like there's just no way you could conceive of that. Could you do it without HBO Max or Peacock? Right now, during the pandemic, you probably can. Right? You know, there, there's probably nothing that is so iconic on either of those that you have to have them. But as you look at the content that's going to flow to these platforms over the course of the next six to nine months. Uh, and it's only going to get more significant as the pandemic, hopefully over the next year, subsides and you start seeing a ramp up in production. It's sort of hard to imagine how you can offer a streaming service and not offer some of the best content in the world. And obviously, look, it puts a lot of pressure on these companies to put great content on the air. But I think all of them are really focused on this is meaning streaming is the place for their iconic content. And so we sort of looked at the battle in that piece that you're talking about and and sort of postulated that the the one major event that everyone's got their eye on, because right now you've got fire TV and Roku are the dominant platforms. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, there are TV platforms, whether it's Vizio or Samsung, they each have their platforms, but the dominant platforms for connected TV operating systems are Roku and, and um, Roku as an OS and then as a connected device, either Roku or Fire TV, with Apple TV and Android much, much smaller in this country. But the thing we're watching and the thing we're really focused on is, is this the moment for Android? Because, you know, the team at Google has made big moves overseas. Android is Android in Europe and parts of Asia and Latin America is much like Roku is here. Like it's the default mm-hmm. platform that you watch television on it right here in this country unless you have a Sony television, if I said Android TV, people are going to look at you funny. Like they have no idea what you're talking about. They think of an Android phone more than they think of 
an Android TV operating system. But, but overseas, it's very different. We think that one of the big swing factors, all signs point to Google getting a lot more aggressive in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because they feel like the TV ecosystem is so important. It's because so much flows off of the home entertainment or media center. Think of if you're Google. Not only do you have the number one app for ad-supported television, meaning YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, YouTube is number one app on connected TVs is Netflix. Number two is YouTube. So they already have a huge presence on connected TVs in the U.S. So it's important for YouTube. So it's important for their ad business. But on top of that, they've launched YouTube TV, which is their channel you know, bundle business. On top of that, they have Stadia, which is their... Um, streaming video game platform that they're trying to push. On top of that, they have Nest, which is their home devices, security cameras, you know, and, yeah. and all of the things that go with that. And so all of that connects into the Android TV platform. And then maybe most importantly, they have this little thing called Google Assistant, mm-hmm. where they're trying to go back to your discovery point before of like, you know, trying to find things in this sea of content. Part of the goal is, you know, if I literally just say, you know, okay, Google, all of a sudden uh, I can make content show up on my Android TV, whether it be linear TV, on-demand TV, something from YouTube, a game, a security camera from Nest. So they're sort of thinking about Android as sort of a way to have the kind of control the living room, control your living room media life. And and to your point, beyond that, right, the connected home, the connected TV is the gateway to the connected home, home, the smart home. This is a huge, you know, to imagine that you're just basically going to surrender the connected home and not be there in the U.S. is sort of hard for us to believe. And so I think the one to watch is, especially knowing they have great voice distribution with Google Assistant, we're really focused on on what Android TV does, all signs to us point to a relaunch of Android TV in September mm-hmm. that's going to make it much more visible. You're starting to see little signs of it. I mean, if you go to Best Buy right now, any of your listeners to this podcast can go to Best Buy and now sitting right next to the Roku TVs, which are made by um, by TCL, right now, right, sitting right next to them, there's Android TVs from TCL. It's the exact same television, but instead of a Roku interface, it's got an Android TV interface. Now, I'll be honest. I don't think any one of your listeners has any idea what an Android TV is. And so what I would expect to see is not just a relaunch of Android TV in the fall, but I would be shocked if you didn't see a major marketing campaign. You know, you've seen the Google ad campaigns in the past. When Google wants to get aggressive with their marketing messages, they can put a lot of media dollars behind it across all platforms. My guess is by the end of this calendar year, all of us are going to understand the power and breadth of Android TV and how it ties together so many things in your home. Well, this is fascinating. I really appreciate the, the deep dive here, Rich, because, you know, I talk, as you and I talked about, most of the people that are listening to this podcast are either work at media entities that have a content publisher content studio or a brand that has a content studio. And the conversations I'm having are it's it's almost like as a content provider, as you look at the distribution ecosystem, there's this element. I had three calls in the last week, in the last 10 days um, from third parties wanting to kind of rep our content to go basically this, the, you know, 
the vomit, the, the logo's vomit on the wall, right? We'll get you on Roku and Pluto and go go down the list, right? Um, Sling, da-da-da-da-da. And, and all these deals for content providers, many of the deals, um, and I'm talking independent content creators, tend to be these non-exclusive revenue share-based deals. There's no, it's hard as a content studio to even differentiate between these third parties, right? Because they all say similar things and you're sitting there and I just have a sense among the colleagues that I talk to where everyone's like, okay, you know what? As long as it doesn't um, box me in, I still own my content. Uh, I'll experiment because it's just a sea of too many players that will wean itself out over time. And by that time, I'll have figured out kind of how to play into that system and figure out how to make money. I'd love for you to kind of put your your filter on that perspective, the content provider perspective, and how do you see this playing out, especially on these free OTT platforms? Um, you're the first person I've heard that went that deep on, on Android, and, and I appreciate it because that's why I'm doing this. We haven't had that conversation, but... Look, there, there's a lot of platforms. I mean, Pluto TV, if you've never used it, is awesome, right? I mean, it's free, yeah. right? I mean, it's not the content you're gonna get on Netflix. Uh, 2B TV, you know, you'll see some recent movies and TV shows that you find of interest, but you'll see a lot of deep catalog. But it has this amazing price called free. Yeah. Roku channel, free. Peacock, you know, you can't get all the premium content, but if you want to watch like last night's television or you want to watch some older catalog and you don't mind five minutes of ads an hour, it's really hard to beat the price of free. And, you know, free has always existed. I mean, I think, you know, we. We sort of lose track when you when you, I don't know if you pay your cable bill or satellite bill if you still have, but you're, you know you're probably spending a hundred dollars a month even before you get to your broadband yep. bill. Yep. But you sort of forget the fact that like there is this thing called free TV, right? I and mean, if you hang an antenna out your window, you do get yep. you know you can watch the NFL for free. You don't have to pay for cable to get the NFL, let alone to get you know ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox. I mean, there's a heck of a lot of content for free. And we sort of have forgotten about it in the world of cable satellite and the world of these SVOD platforms. And let's be fair, right, and just, you know, kind of frame it for your listeners. I don't think any of these ad-supported free streaming services are going to be nearly the size and scale of Netflix. I mean, no. Netflix with 100 and, you know, approaching 200 million subscribers this year with who, who pay 13 dollars a month there's nothing that's, you know, you're going to have the scale of that in, in the ad supported streaming world, but ca can they be real businesses that make money and, you know, capture time and give away for brands to reach consumers? Because one of the big things that we've noticed is that as we've gone from linear TV to streaming TV, ad time has evaporated. I mean, most of the services that we talk about are either ad free or ad light mm -hmm. traditional TV world. It's 18 minutes of ads an hour in many ways it's it's sort of like the podcast world i mean you think about podcast versus terrestrial radio i mean it's night and day in terms yeah. of the ad lift and so as we shift from you know we move from legacy or traditional media businesses to the world of streaming everyone is trying to figure out and i think this is one of the toughest questions right now that i you know i talk to brands a lot about is like how are you going to reach consumers in five years i mean if you look at what's happening in cord cutting you know it's getting hard enough to reach me Right. You know, someone might, and I'm, I'm 46, and I wouldn't say it's easy to meet, reach me on linear TV, 
but you try to reach my kids on linear TV? Yeah, good luck. I mean, I have three kids under the age of 18, all over the age of 10, and you can't reach them on linear TV. I mean, they may watch something that aired earlier in the night or aired yesterday on a DVR or on demand or they've recorded it on YouTube TV or whatnot, but they are not watching linear TV with 18 minutes of ads. And so if you're a brand, I think you've got your hand up going, you know, help, help. Like I need help to figure out like, how am I going to reach people? And I've got to rethink how I interact and how do I build my own direct to consumer business model? Because relying on linear television is just not going to work over the next five years. Yeah. I've always, I've always been interested in that. And I think, um, I agree. And you and I are the same age, same kid, three kids, and the good luck. The linear TV, they don't even know what that is, right? There's that element of whatever. There's a monitor, and con- I can access content through it, right? And so one thing that I've talked to some of my friends at some of the major media companies, um, you seem to be more objective and less emotional about it than I am. But I, I've lived in this false sense of early adopter stage where it's been like, you know what? Um Digital's here. Digital's here. And honestly, it wasn't until the last 60, 90 days where I've been talking to um, major media companies, household brand names, where I feel like that shift has happened. And the shift meaning, look, many of the executives at these companies are our age or older who've been forced to be consuming content, right? So if you look at like whatever, an NBC, a Turner, an ESPN, many of these folks even though the marketplace is there and you look at actual consumption of how content is consumed, the notion of when you really go back a year ago, uh, you know, the idea of linear television and scale, digital at these major companies was still an, I don't say added value, but this added, it wasn't looked at as a primary revenue source. It was almost like a secondary distribution where linear was still there. That for the I, I do believe has changed. I've talked to folks who are changing their business strategies around digital, and I'm convinced it's because it's it's quite literally their laptops and their phones have been in their face during COVID, with and particularly without sports. I'm curious what what you think the impact of COVID has been on the space. What are you hearing, and, and what do you see in the near ter- near term six to twelve months as a result well, of some I- of this? When you think back over the last decade, one of the things that we've all sort of noticed, you know, I go back to one of the first shows that really taught us about binging, which was Mad Men and then Breaking Bad, where, Mm -hmm. you know, you it did very meager. I mean, nobody really watched those shows in the first couple of years. Most people started watching them on Netflix. Uh, It was one of the early deals that Netflix did. And sort of taught you to, you know, binge a show. And then the beauty of it was, and I remember seeing this in slide presentations, the idea was, well, if you binged it and caught up, you would gain back viewers who had missed the show. And then they would tune in live for the new episodes. Mm -hmm. That worked for a few years. And it really was a huge boon to the the media space because you had a way of, of catching people up so that they would watch. And you know, going out and renting a stack of DVDs was not an elegant way of quote unquote catching up. Streaming services where you just went episode to episode and before you could even say no, it's already streaming the next episode on Netflix, it became this amazing engine for getting you to catch up quickly and then tune in live. 
what the media companies screwed up, and I think to your question on COVID, COVID has notably accelerated, is that we've all sort of caught the binging bug now, and we don't want to watch week to week. Right. And when you spend you know the last four or five months of pandemic going series to series, it's no longer about what's on linear TV. The more you think about those moments of truth, you know, you finish work at five o'clock, six o'clock, whatever it may be. And you say, what do I want to do tonight? And the less you think about turning on the TV, the linear TV, cable, satellite, whatever it may be, the less you think about linear and you just think about, hey, I'm just going to turn on Netflix or I'm going to turn on Amazon, turn on Hulu. Those moments of truth, the more they keep getting won by streaming, the harder it's going to be even when the pandemic ends. I don't know if that behavior changes back. Like I think once you become addicted and you see the vast libraries and the suggestions, you know, you think about, hey, well, this thing is new on Netflix. Oh, I haven't seen that. I'm going to start watching that series. I mean, for me, it just happened. You know, I hadn't seen Killing Eve on Hulu and I started watching it. And now I'm in the middle of season two. And for the next you know, week and a half, that's probably what I'm going to do every night um, with mm-hmm. my wife. With that is we're, you know, we're going to we'll watch an episode or two. And, you know, I, I guess the, the point being is that binging begets binging. And once you I think we have shifted behavior and the pandemic just moves us even further away from that linear TV world. And so unless you're a sports fan, I mean, honestly, unless you love sports, why do you even like subscribe to cable or satellite television anymore? I mean, what are you watching? I mean, maybe you're a news junkie, but like really when you think about it, there isn't a lot of programming that you can't find on streaming. Everything on broadcast TV that is entertainment-wise is available on Hulu or Peacock or one of these platforms. You don't need HBO to get, you know, a cable system to get HBO. All of these things, you can just click a button. And the beauty of it is, unlike Comcast or Charter, and I'm sure you've had this experience in your life, if you want to cancel or even sign up, you don't have to take a day off from work. You literally just click a button. You know, you don't want Netflix tomorrow? Just cancel it. Five seconds. You don't have to anyone you don't have to spend hours being transferred to the retention department and trying to explain why you want to leave you just click cancel and when you're ready to come back you click rejoin and start paying again yeah the the side of this is so powerful and i think underestimated like when you when you really put the consumer at the center of the equation versus the business model or the legacy kind of economic structure of the industry amazing things happen when the consumer is really focused on. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, to your point, sports, of which I am a fan, it's, it's you know, why the rights fees are what they are, right? I mean, it's kind of the last holdout on the cord keeper model, and everyone's trying to figure that out, and that too will change, right? And it is changing as, as ESPNs and the other rights holders are trying to hedge their bet on the cord cutting and it's uh it's just a it's a fascinating dynamic one thing that that um i saw today that you were writing about just in terms of you know the other piece of this talk about disruption theater is just completely shut down and distribution of uh theatrical releases uh with tom hanks new movie and um the way that things are going there i mean that you talk about the perfect storm of um connected TV and the players that you're talking about, um, you know, the, the days of theaters, I, I mean, think about it. I can't, 
it's going to be an interesting couple of years to see the major motion picture, you know, from production through execution in this in this COVID time. I'd be curious to get your your slash Lightshed's take on the movie business. I mean, look, we heard today that um, you know that uh, movie theaters are going to try to open up for Labor Day, at least in some cities, as Warner Brothers is going to try yet again to release Tenant. We'll see whether it really goes forward. I mean, it sounds like they're going to try to do like a rolling international rollout and then sort of a rolling city by city rollout in the U.S., something that's literally never been done. I think the problem is, uh, you know, all of the research seems to say that COVID has an aerosol aspect to it. And being in indoor spaces is not a great place. I mean, Hollywood agents and Hollywood studios don't want to work in their offices for fear of spreading the disease. And yet the same studios want people to go to movie theaters to watch movies in indoor spaces. Yep. Sort of hard to fathom. (laughs) Um, And and look, just like you have people who are, you know, partying like nothing's happened with COVID. I'm sure if you opened up movie theaters tomorrow, there'd be a certain segment of the population that would certainly go. I mean, look, Disney world is open. Um, I, I wouldn't go. I, I'm assuming no. you probably go, no. but there are people. There's thousands of people. You know, there aren't tens of thousands, but there's thousands of people that are showing up to Disneyland or sorry, Disney World every day. So I, I think people will go if you open theaters. But the problem is what type of attendance. And, you know, if you think about a movie, let's just, you know, take it from a simplistic level. A movie like Tenant probably was going to do you know, let's just say between 750 million and a billion dollars worldwide. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Mulan, Disney's upcoming, you know, major feature film that's been delayed repeatedly, probably a billion to a billion and a half. But let's just, because it's super simple, we'll just say each film was going to do a billion dollars. That means you need a $10 average ticket price, even a little less around the world. You need to sell over a hundred million tickets. Yeah. You know, in this environment, with what we're seeing happen in this country and Not a prayer. what's going on in Brazil and Latin America, and now you see, you know, hotspots, you know, breaking out in the Caribbean and Latin America. I mean, it just, it is very hard to fathom that you're going to get people to do that um, in large numbers, especially because you've learned that there's more and more content available in the comfort and safety of your own home, right? I mean, you made the comment about Greyhound, which was the, you know, the um, the Apple TV Plus that was supposed to go to movie theaters that they bought the Tom Hanks film. So there's just more and more content that's skipping traditional platforms and going straight to streaming. Consumers are embracing it, and it's just making it that much harder to want to go to something where, again, I don't think, I mean, look, I think the theaters will do everything in their power to make it as safe as possible. But the reality is they can't make it fully safe. There's right. definitely risk. Yeah. And so for people that are not comfortable, which is going to be a good chunk of the population, I mean, we've seen some survey data that said, you know, half of frequent moviegoers don't feel comfortable right now or don't feel comfortable, you know, over the course of the next several months. That's going to make it hard to make money. Now, look, you can release movies and just lose money. But, you know, to the extent that the movies underperform, there's a hidden danger that nobody's talking about in my mind, which is, so it, let's just take, you take a movie like Tenant, 
Mm-hmm. It's from Milan, and it dramatically underperforms. Well, that hurts the talent because the talent's going to make less money than they would have made normally. And does that just drive the talent to say, you know what? I really should make my next movie for Netflix yeah. or for Amazon or for yeah. Apple. I can make more money. I don't have to take the risk. Look, I used to love the upside. I mean, think right. about a movie like Avengers. It made $900 million in profit for the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> the talent tens of millions of dollars. I mean, it was incredible. But if that's not going to be possible for years, and Netflix and Amazon and Apple are handing out these fat checks to come create movies over there, I think you're going to take the money and walk across the street. And that's the real risk for the studios. If you shoot too soon, you know, if you fire and and try to move too fast into movie theaters, and the public is not there to support you, it's going to drive the talent faster to streaming yep. which is exactly not what you want to yeah. occur yeah it's doubling down for the cannibalization of your own business model to some degree and in, in reconfiguring it i'm talking with rich greenfield partner at light shed you can follow him on twitter at rich light l-i-g-h-t shed s-h-e-d he's a media futurist that you can as you can tell by now uh, knows his stuff rich you mentioned this before Uh, Last place I want to go here, Uh, you mentioned one of the toughest questions was around how brands are going to play in this ecosystem, right? So imagine for a second your IBM Originals or Marriott, right? These content creators, entities that actually have their own content studios and create content, but are also marketers trying to figure out how to play in this new world order. What's your advice for them? Um. Experiment, 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 because there is no easy answer, right? I mean, this is an entirely new world. The idea that you could just push a button and a TV ad could go out to tens of millions of people. This is going to be a lot harder, and you're going to have to figure out how do you integrate yourself into Instagram and maybe work with influencers and maybe create content. You know, maybe you have to make your own... You know, maybe you have to partner and actually make content for streaming platforms yourself that mm-hmm. kind of speaks to your brand ethos. Yep. Thing you're working on or a new product. Maybe it's product placement. I mean, look at Egos in Stranger Things, and there's probably 40 other brands that were promoted within Stranger Things. Product placement may get more important. Uh, maybe you need to be creating podcasts, you know, that highlight, you know, with, with, with key talent that's, you know, weaves in your brand and your messaging or maybe it's just doing podcast ads where hosts hosts that love your product will talk about them on air as the the online ads i mean maybe it's video gaming i mean talk about the when we talked earlier about the, the category that's exploded is gaming yeah most you know brands i don't see you know doing ads in the middle of video games but like reward video where hey you want to get this new thing in fortnite watch this ad or you know you know experience this product for 30 seconds or trying to insert yourself I mean, you look away nike has inserted themselves into roblox or fortnite or you know you see brands trying to penetrate into animal crossing on nintendo you know i think again all of this is going to require a lot more work every single thing i'm mentioning is harder than just clicking a button and a 15 or 30 second spot goes to radio, terrestrial radio or TV. Everything I'm talking about is hard. Yep. And it doesn't scale the way it did, but you, there's no debate. If you wanna reach people in the new world, 
the terrestrial linear mechanisms that we're all used to that were easy for brands and advertisers simply are not going to be there. I mean, they're going to exist, but you're going to reach a very small fraction of the population. And of that population, it's an aging population that watches a lot. So like the population that's still watching linear TV, you know, increasingly is over the age of 50 and they're bombing it. Like they're watching so much more than the 21 year old. And so not only are you reaching, you're reaching the same people over and over again, which is not what you want as a brand. And you're reaching people that are outside of your core demo. I mean, you always think about TV wants to reach 18 to 49. Well, you are not reaching 18 to 34 on TV. I mean, those numbers are literally collapsing. Yeah, it's interesting. Kind of flipping the equation on to, you know, the sea of independent media publishers. And by that, whether that's a complex or a Players Tribune, um, how do you look at their lens right now with so much, uh, so many different content platform opportunities out there? Similarly, what would your advice be or recommendations to media publisher owners? By media publishers, like give me examples of what you're thinking of in terms of like what the universe that when you think about it. So here's the universe I think about it from my perspective, right? So we own, uh, we've built some media, independent media publishing companies. We have a baseball one. It's called La Vida Baseball. And I think one of the challenges uh, for media publishers is how to obviously monetize your content, but doing so in a way that's not short-sighted, right? There's so many different avenues, right? You license content over here. Someone pays you for it. You can do a series on Netflix. Uh, Pluto, you want to have a channel, a connected TV channel. You can go and do that, but it takes a lot of time, money, energy, and marketing resources to do so. So knowing that um, the field has far from settled, and there's so many, so many different ways that you can play, um, you know, I look at the, the sea of independent media refinery 29s of the world um you know and vice was one that you know obviously emerged into maybe a bigger uh one that actually ironically went back to linear and started creating shows on hbo i guess that that mindset of media publisher owners that are out there trying to take advantage of the connected tv world what advice you have for them you know the the challenge with media publishers and you know we if you put BuzzFeed, Vox, yep. uh, Refinery, I mean, you know, you put this whole group of companies. The problem is most of them have relied on on web advertising of some form and generally web advertising on somebody else's platform, Facebook, YouTube. They haven't built direct-to-consumer businesses mm-hmm. um, where they own and control the customer. And unfortunately, that means that they're at the whim of, economic and algorithmic changes of the platforms and it's a very precarious position to be in what you really want to do is you know figure out ways you can have a direct relationship with your consumer and i'd say you know look at what barstool has done whether you love barstool or hate barstool content wise what you have to give them credit for is they've taken uh, you know a, a large brand presence and transformed it into multiple businesses so they have a huge yeah. podcast business they're one of the top five podcasters now in the u.s in terms of total listening hours you look at their merchandise business i mean mm-hmm. you know go to any college campus assuming there's college but you know go to any college campus and look around and you see bar merch everywhere and it's not just guys it's girls it's everyone i mean this is it's incredible what they've built and so you, you have to figure out ways i think 
you have to figure out how you create a direct relationship with your fan. Your brand has to mean something. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's you know, what Barstool's the, done, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they've created a community. I think it's what I think it's refinery like a sense of pride. Does refinery or vice do they really mean something to the consumer anymore? I think that's right. the really the challenge. Right. I think they did at one point. I'm not sure they really do today. You know, I don't. I think that's you know BuzzFeed. It did, and I'm not sure it really does anymore. And so, if your brand is not must-have by the consumer. If people are not passionate, I always think about it, the T-shirt test. Yep. I if agree. someone's not willing to wear your T-shirt around, you probably don't have a brand, right? Yep. Like people wear Mickey Mouse T-shirts. People will wear a Barstool T-shirt. Nobody wears an ESPN T-shirt. Nobody wears a Fox Sports T-shirt. Yep. Um, I don't think there's too many people walking around with Refinery29 T-shirts. <laughs> and so – you know, whereas if I put on a Fortnite T-shirt, people will be or you know, think about my. I remember back in Minecraft, where Minecraft merch was like everywhere, and like. Yep. So I, I do think that there's sort of like this passion factor. Is the are consumers so passionate for your brand? And if they aren't, you probably have a problem. So you probably have to fix that or, or address that. But if you do have that, then how do you build direct to consumer businesses? Really, how do you get to know your consumer? And I'm not saying it has to be a subscription business. Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's merch. I think there's lots of different ways to do it. I'm not telling you I have the the magic answer to this, but I think that's what every – I think that's what every company is trying to figure out today is how do they build that direct-to-consumer bridge with their brand and create content. Yeah, I agree. It's passion and it's that sense of community and belonging that's beyond just the brand, right? It's that you the, the t-shirt test is whether it's Barstool or whatever it may be, to your point of Fortnite, it's like, hey, I'm part of this club um, you yep. know, and I'm proud enough to, to actually show the world, right? So home stretch here. Yeah, like House of Highlights is a good example. Yes. That, right? yep. Built a brand and I'm not sure it's as vibrant today as it once was, but you know, I think on the on the high school sports side, something like overtime, right? They mm-hmm. built a brand among high school sports athletes. Great Those example. Those brands really are powerful. There's not that many of them. It's very hard to do, but once you have them, it's like lightning in a bottle. And yeah. that's that's what every brand has to be thinking about: is how do you build that passionate audience, and then how do you think about monetization? And you can't just simply fall on the crutch of hey, let's throw up a spammy ad and and just, you know, jam ads down people's throats. I think it's really about innovating on how you make money. And, you you know, if you're relying on Facebook, if you're relying, it's fine to be on Facebook. It's fine to use Instagram as a platform. But if you're relying on them for monetization, good luck to you. Yeah, agreed. Well said. So now we're going to flip to the personal side on the home stretch here. Morning must for you, Rich. How in the world do you stay on top of all the industry news and assimilate it? Newsletters, sites, social follows that you rely on to keep your A-game? I'd say the single most important thing that I do every single day is Twitter. I mean, Twitter is my you know news funnel. I spend a lot of time curating that feed. And I think the beauty of what um, and I don't think they get enough credit for what Jack Dorsey and team have done, but Twitter learns, right? I mean, just like we were talking about the TV and how, you know, what Netflix does versus, you know, I mean, it, it's 2020 and I turn on my TV and it still doesn't know that I was watching, you know, this is us last week or whatnot. Like it's mm-hmm. still, there's no smarts to my television and it's 2020. 
but you think about Twitter, every day it's learning based on what I watch. And I think what's remarkable is that when I open up my Twitter feed, it knows what I'm interested in and it makes sure I see the information. And so Twitter has become just indispensable in terms of finding new data points, learning, catching up in the morning about what's going on. Uh, Newsletters, I mean, look, I think Dylan Byers has a great newsletter on media that I read every morning. Brian Stelter, Reliable Sources, has a great newsletter every night. Axios does a great Tuesday morning. Sarah Fisher, a Tuesday morning newsletter that I read religiously. Uh, Jason Hershorn at Media Redef does great curation that I think is an important follow for anyone who's interested in a bunch of different subsectors of, of TMT, kind of tech media and telecom. Those are probably the big ones. I mean, I think on a weekly basis, Benedict Evans has a good tech and Ben Thompson for techery is a good um, daily morning kind of big idea uh, newsletter. I'd say really between newsletters and Twitter, I get the overwhelming majority of my news. I, I, I am a subscriber to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, but I don't just flip through them cover to cover. Right. I literally, it's sort of the news sort of finds me on my platforms and I subscribe to these things. I should also say Apple News. I find Apple News uh, very helpful hmm. in surfacing stories, not the paid product, the free product, but just in terms of, again, I pick 10 topics that I'm really interested in, and I find it very helpful in surfacing stories. Every day I'll see a couple of stories that I missed elsewhere. Very cool. Well, last but not least is, uh, if you have time, what's in the Rich Greenfield just read or want to read in the book category? The Bedstand Books Oh, my God. Like, there, you know, look, I think in terms of what's coming, I'd say the two books that I'm most looking forward to, uh, there is a um, – Reed Hastings is coming out with a, a, an autobiography, I guess, hmm. on or a book on leadership that I was supposed to come out, I think, last month, got delayed by the pandemic and is now coming out, I think, in September. I think if, if there was any company that everyone should be focused on learning from in terms of just being managed differently and has literally transformed the entire television business and now the entire movie business. I think that's a must read this fall. And then the other one that I'm just, again, I think looking at our current situation between Trump, Fox News and whatnot, Brian Stelter's coming out with a book, I think in late August, um, that I can't wait to read. Awesome. Well, Rich Greenfield, this was such a joy. I felt like I got a master's class in under an hour of media futurism. So so thank you so much for sharing your time and insights with us. Great to chat. I really appreciate you asking me to do it. Thanks for listening to Brand Story, Inc. We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.